happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 207 on February 3rd, 2020, 2021. Excuse me. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I'm glad to be joining you. And wow, I uh, yes, I'm joining you from Oklahoma City, where it's been very temperate and warm. But I think you know we're going to get a little bit of a of a cold front without moisture. So it's uh, but we're going to like have a, a low of around ten or nine or something like that on Monday or Tuesday, which is pretty cold for us. But we are about two weeks away from the end of our second trimester, and we made it through the month of January. So that's all good news. Outstanding. Um, well, let's talk about the situation room then. Uh, uh, well, actually, I should say snowing in Montana. Um, and we're actually getting some snow, which is good. Like winter without snow means fires in August. So we are having some nice snowfall here. It's been snowing off and off for four or five days. But this is not a weather report. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We will go through headlines from across the techosphere and kind of shoot them through an education lens and see if we can get some insight for those of you out there in education land looking to better implement technology in your classroom, school, or district. Tonight, we have several categories, as we always do. By the way, you can find every link we talk about and quite a few we don't at our website, edtechsr.com. You can go to edtechsr.com slash links and go directly to our massive Google document, which actually spans all 207 episodes of our show going back th almost four years now um, of EdTech Situation Room. But tonight, we're going to talk about 5G and connectivity, some Apple Google news, uh, not together apart, actually, some privacy news, some security updates podcasting, the tech correction, as we talk about often on the show, and we'll end the top of the hour with our Geeks of the Week. Wes, where would you like to start us tonight? Well, um, I think I'll start under security, uh, and I want to give a shout-out to um, the Security Now podcast on the Twit Network, and specifically uh, Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson. Um and I got to say, too, man, finding these kind of articles, you, you know, is a good thing on checking sources. But this is the Tech Times, which I did 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 some research in, like, what is this? And it's, been, you know, established in 2000, uh, New York City newspaper. But they don't identify exactly who they are. But this was an article that uh, Steve talked about. Adobe Flash Player shutdown caused chaos for Chinese railroads for over 20 hours. <laughs> and this was an article from January the 25th. There's a few different places carrying this. But as we mentioned on the show several times prior to the end of support for Adobe Flash in all modern web browsers, um, you know, this was the end of Adobe Flash support on, on everything. But not all technology using folks and particularly like IT people apparently were were knowledgeable about that so they had their whole system i guess you know for for running these trains in this area um coded in adobe flash 
And um, there was another similar article that was about the the South African government, and this was this was covered by ZDNet, a much more mainstream source. And this was from January the twenty sixth, and it was saying that um, this, uh, I guess financial, uh, maybe taxation area. It's a South African revenue service. So I guess that sounds like the IRS of, of part of South Africa, uh, created its own custom web browser to re-enable the flash, you know, support, uh, rather than port its existing website, you know, for all of its HTML forms, basically to buy itself some time. So I know that our daughter, um, who is continuing to take French, uh, had been using a flash based website. And I think she said, that they had gone ahead and converted that. Um, you had mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, I think, some kind of emulator that you could download. Um, I don't know that this is causing tremendous grief for individuals, but these two examples from China and South Africa show that in different countries, um, you know, the ending of flash support has caused some some issues. So how any any um, difficulties as far as uh, Montana Digital Academy curriculum or was all that stuff adequately handled and uh, substituted for other curriculum in advance? Well, I will tell you that uh, uh, first, we have run into three things since January 1st. And what's interesting about it is that it's things that someone should have ran into before. We've been encouraging our teachers to turn off the Flash Player for the last year, just so if they ran into curriculum objects uh, that we would deal with them. We probably had... Uh, I'd say 90% of it dealt with by June 1, 2020, and then we fixed the rest. Of, actually, 96% of it dealt with, uh, uh, very near all of it dealt with by June 1. And then we had a couple of leftover things to deal with. The thing that uh, is, is interesting about this is that I think if Apple hadn't pushed the conversation, you know, really 10 years prior when they decide not to to support the flash player um, on the iPad and led to that whole kerfuffle with Steve Jobs, you know, writing the open letter to everyone saying why they did that. I think it would have been a much harder transition if they had announced this, even if the timeline was the same and they just announced this two or three years ago, I think uh, HTML five would not have been necessarily as, as mature to take over for flash players. Um, you know, the thing that's super interesting to me is that, you know, standards change and, you know, lots of, things that were created, you know, 20 years ago don't work now. Um, you know, there are some, some, some things that, that will always likely work, right? Like a word document is likely to be openable for, you know, the foreseeable future. Um, but when you talk about these kinds of technologies, lots of things from 20 years ago, just, just don't work anymore. And one of the evidences I have, one of the pieces of evidence I have of that is the number of older web pages that don't render quite correctly in modern web browsers. Uh, you know, a modern web browser can certainly render HTML, but there were tags and things that were unique to the Internet Explorer browser or unique to early versions of Gecko, which is the precursor to Firefox. All those things uh, oftentimes were very browser specific and those were depreciated at some point and then stopped being supported by browsers. So this was an inevitable thing. Ruffle is the emulator that uh, I mentioned in the past, which can allow you to emulate a Flash player. It's a, a Flash player that's that's built on the so-called Rust programming language. Um, uh, we have not had to do anything like this because we were able to reconfigure everything that... Um, uh, that uh, required the Flash Player. We were able to redesign it internally. Sometimes it's a you know, little messy uh, to do that, but we were able to do it. 
I will say I was part of some conversations with, uh, it wasn't quite a, a vendor. It was a partner, a uh, content partner of MTDA that, that is a, a pur- purveyor of open source content that is largely foundation funded. And I do know that a lot of people in the content business, um, had to make hard decisions because it was either leave the content up, even though the flash player was quickly being eliminated. This started about 18 months ago or, um, just let it die because they didn't have the funds to reconfigure that content. One example of something that a lot of digital teachers used was a lot of the the digital textbook websites that are in some cases, 10, 12, 15 years old class zone was one of them, which I think is a, uh, I can't remember which uh, uh, textbook manufacturer made that, but it was a free open access website that had a lot of content on it, what well, was Flash-based. And they were also, I think, tired of people kind of leeching off of that, that were not, uh, uh, you know, uh, licensors of their textbook, right? Or licensees, I guess, of their textbook. Uh, so they decided um, to just shut the website down. So that is certainly, um, you know, a, a downfall of when those technologies change as well. All right. Where would you like to go to next? Well, um, I, I put the article in last week, but I, I, the re, I have had this conversation with a couple of people in the last couple of days, or actually last couple of weeks, and I want to mention it. There's a really great guide from The Verge uh, that was updated last week about 5G phones and, and your phone plan. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Um, I think that the wonder of 5G, unfortunately, was diminished a little bit because of the pandemic, because a lot of people weren't out and about, right, and be able to to discover new applications for extremely fast internet access, right? So if you're sitting at home, chances are that 5G is probably not as good as the typical uh, high-end home connection, right? So the people pushing the edge on this uh, may have not had a real opportunity to test 5G, but with new iPhones being being 5G compatible with a variety of Android phones, and in some cases, relatively inexpensive Android phones, for example, Motorola now has one of their uh, budget phones that has 5G capability, people are going to start to utilize 5G on their plans. And what's interesting about this is that um, uh, not every carrier is is built the same. And we talked about this in the past. There's different kinds of 5G. That's a, a, a part of the problem. Uh, AT&T, which has been mercilessly mocked because they had some some 5G light or 4G plus. They had some bizarre name for their like just super fast LTE connection, which wasn't really 5G technology, but if you are upgrading to a 5G phone, you owe it to yourself, and I think this is a great resource to do that, to research what happens when you're using 5G. In most cases, those plans will uh, allow you unlimited 5G access if you have an unlimited plan already, but some of the plans will scale you back to slower internet, uh, so they they will uh, um, uh, decrease your uh, bandwidth or deprioritize you is another word for that uh, with phone carriers. Um, or in some cases, uh, they may choose to shut off your 5G completely if you're abusing it. And that's some of the NVNOs, the, the, the smaller carriers that, that have threatened to five or shut off people to use too much 5G. But I wanted to share this really great resource from The Verge um, on 5G. Um, Wes, do you have a, a 5G phone in the Friar household yet? No, no. I'm still on the, the iPhone 8 and yeah, probably going to stay there for a while. So I just, uh, I think the hype is, 
it's just that it's hype at this point. And, you know, until we see a substantial rollout, it's really not going to be anything to, to get excited about. So. Well, I do know from reading other accounts of 5G that uh, you may be in better shape turning off 4G or LTE on your phone if you don't have a lot of 5G phones in your area, right? If you have a lot of capacity, which would like wouldn't be the case in like a place like Missoula, Montana, but let's say you're in Spokane, Seattle, Portland, uh, Eugene, Oregon, be another place I would expect this to be. It may be that in your neighborhood or in your area that 5G may be relatively uncongested because the lack of of 5G phones. At some point that will change though, right? As yeah. more phones are released. And my understanding is that the actual technology be- behind 5G has a lot more pipe or a lot more bandwidth available to serve individual phones. So we'll have to see what that looks like. But, um, you know, I, I am pay- uh, very patiently waiting for the opportunity to use 5G at some point into the future. Shout out to our chat room. Uh, we've got uh, Peggy George out in Arizona and my dad up in Kansas tonight. Greetings. Um, Peggy asked a couple, uh, shares a couple things and asked a question. Uh, she was on a teacher's teaching teachers um, webinar tonight, and they were exploring a new virtual space as an alternative to Zoom called Kumo Space. That's <laughs> interesting. I hadn't actually heard of that. It's an open source tool that's being used for small groups. So you can use it for your family. Um, I mentioned uh, in the chat that I had heard that, you know, Zoom is developing a, uh, an education uh, specific platform called Class. It's just class.com. I have not tried, you know, either one of those platforms, but I think it's good to hear about some, you know, educational school K-12. Uh, and I think that's, I'm sure, considering higher ed as well, but education specific tools because Zoom along with really all the other video conferencing platforms was not designed from the outset as, Oh, this will be great for, you know, remote and distance learning. It was really, you know, about conferencing and doing a lot of things, but not really putting education as its primary focus. So uh, Peggy says, hi to you, dad in the chat room. Oh, and my mother is there as well. So see, you know, it's just great. Jason, my parents, Peggy, the, the important people are here. It's great. Um, so then the other thing that, uh, mentioned here was or question. Um, how do you know if you have 5G? So, Dr. Neifer, what would you say to that? Well, uh, chances are if you purchased a new phone in the last six months and you bought a, a, a premium model, so I would say five or six hundred dollars or more, it's likely to have 5G because newer models are tending to come with that. But the easiest way to know that, assuming you're in an area where you expect to have a 5G signal, is that a little 5G will appear um, on the top of your phone somewhere in place of the 4G and LTE designation. Um, I do know someone with a 5G phone in Missoula. Um, he said there's no one on there, that the signal's always super strong, and he never gets bandwidth capped ever. And he has, and, and he's the only person I know in Western Montana with a 5G phone. Certainly there must be others, but um, you know, he said that uh, he noticed he noticed the difference in speed right away. And remember, it's not just 5G is not just fast because it allows more data at once. It actually gets to your phone quicker, right? The speed from your phone to the tower. Um, and then the tower to, to the broad internet is, is much, much faster and, and the lag decreases dramatically. And we've talked in the past on the podcast about why that could be a really magical thing for people that are trying to create, uh, real time experiences at a distance. But, you know, 5G will be something special. It's just not there yet. 
Yeah, and that also means the towers just don't have the range, and so the the density of those towers, you know, is is very different. So I like to talk a little bit about Google, but I want to point out to our viewers and listeners that we have a lot of Apple links tonight, and if you didn't know it, and no one else probably would, you can tell what articles Dr. Neifer has put in because he likes to use a semicolon between the source and the date where I use a comma. That's just something that kind of, kind of happened. Nice to see a lot of Apple articles, sir. I've, I only put one of those in, but I want to talk about Google and Australia. Um, I put a couple of these in. This is really a big deal. Uh, Google is on the, on the edge, on the verge or on the edge would be like, you know, spoof Microsoft's Edge browser, but they are close to being kicked out of the country of Australia or basically leaving because of some some pretty, from how I read it, crazy sounding legislation. And there's been all kinds of angst and there still is. And we've seen this uh, represented in, in different kinds of legislation in Europe and elsewhere, you know, with journalism being hurt so much by by the search engines and Google specifically. So the article I dropped in is from ABC News. This is from February 1st. The headline is Australian Prime Minister says Bing could replace Google. Um, and of course, Google has 93% of the search right now in Australia. And I'm sure that everyone who works for Microsoft would be really, really excited about this. Um, Bing only has a 3.6% market share. Oh, this article actually says Google has 95%. So uh, what is going on? Well, Australian legislators are, are in, and this is my interpretation of this, listening to, um, you know, big media and, and journalism folks, and they are um, saying that, you know, Google is, is just killing us. And we are producing this content. We're, we're, you know, outlaying this money. Uh, we need to be compensated for it. Google needs to pay. Uh, and so let me drop in one other article. This is from The Guardian. Uh, this one was also from uh, February the 1st. This is headline, Microsoft being ready to step in if Google pulls search from Australia. And so the Google has threatened that if they don't back down on this, uh, what they're calling a news media code, uh, they're just going to leave. Uh, the only place I'm familiar with Google leaving um, has been China. And of course, that's tr a tremendous market and, and has a huge impact. But I kind of think Google has been getting back into the Chinese market. I haven't done a lot of reading about that um, recently. But uh, yeah, this this basically is saying that, you know, Google, in order to use news that is being acquired uh, or, you know, published by Australian companies is just going to have to pay up. And I think Google saying this would break us. You know, we, we can't do this. We're, we're a search company, but, you know, obviously they're very profitable. Uh, and that as we and I could have put this under the tech correction, probably, because this is the idea more generally of people, companies, society, government representatives being upset at things that tech companies either are doing or are not doing, and then either passing actual legislation or threatening to pass legislation to try and regulate and remedy some of these problems. So your thoughts, Dr. Neifer, on Australia and Google? Well, um, 
maybe you can clarify something for me, Wes. I've seen a couple articles on this now, and I, I guess is is Australia upset because Google's linking to the news, or is 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 Australia upset because they're actually publishing text from the news on on like one of the Google sites? I mean, I think it has to do with the fact that the you know what's it what's it called AMP? You know AMP? Yeah, sure. Do their, yep. the link, and it, they don't. It has to do with ad revenue and and Google being you know intercepting this and and I think these sites not having the full benefit of the advertising revenue that that they would have so right. that's probably part of you know Google News but the AMP technology and if you're not familiar with that a lot of times when you do click a link in Google News which by the way Google News is fantastic you know Jason and I you can't see the Kool Aid here. Perhaps we need to make that, but you know, we, we, we drink the Google Kool-Aid. It's delicious. Although it's been a little bit interesting lately to see some changes that they've made that we've talked about on the show in terms of some charging for schools and things, but yeah. they, um, you know, have a fantastic platform in Google news that I've used for years. One of the things I've been teaching my fifth and sixth grade students as we talk a little bit about news and media literacy, you know, is that it's good to, how do you decide who to trust? How do you know whether a, a news site is a legitimate, you know, quote unquote mainstream site. And if it is on Google News, that's a pretty good, um, pretty good guarantee that it's not just a mom and pop shop out of somebody's garage that has absolutely no street cred. You know, Google is only listing um, news organizations and sites there that it, it considers to be actual journalism sites. So um, I have not read exhaustively. These were two of the main articles that I found about this. Um, but I, but I think it's similar to what we're seeing in other parts of the world, the United States, Europe, you know, of course included, um, where we've, we've seen, you know, news agencies, uh, kind of fed up with this disinter, disintermediation. Google doesn't produce, as far as I know at all, in any news articles themselves, but they certainly benefit from the republic republication, uh, the repackaging within Google News, which if you don't have this app, you know, download it for your phone. Uh, I use the Google News app multiple times a week, not necessarily every day, uh, but it is a great tool. And not only does it show you headlines, but of course it's Google. So the more you use it, the more it will find out the kind of things that you're interested in. It knows, of course, I live in Oklahoma. It shows me some local news. You know, it mixes it up with technology. Um, you know, this is the surveillance capitalism world in which we live. But this is also, I think, a pretty you know clear example of the tech correction where, I mean, this would be dramatic, right? For Google to leave the nation of Australia and abandon that market. I mean, it is a threat. It would be super interesting, of course, to see what the response would be of Australian consumers because, hey, if that's, you know, 93, 95% of Australians use it as their primary search engine. And I don't know if you've used Bing lately, but it ain't great. You know, I had an, ex an experience, um, it was about two years ago, I guess, where anyway, I had a Windows machine that I was setting up for uh, a staff member. And the only reason I was using Edge, which was pre-installed as the browser, was to download Chrome. And I don't know if this was a function of my speed, but I think I told this story before, but I was going so quick. I just Googled Chrome. The first site that came up was a malware site. And I was installing a malware version of Chrome before I knew it. And rather than try to mess with that, I just I just blew the system away, reinstalled Windows 10, and, you know, 
an hour later, we, we were installing the real version of Chrome. But I just, I do, Microsoft's doing wonderful things. I'm really glad we say this, say this frequently on the show, if not every every session. Uh, we're both big advocates of competition and having choices. And those things bring value to us, not only as consumers, but as a society. Microsoft has been doing wonderful innovation in a lot of areas, but I don't think they've really done very well with search. And I, I would predict that Australians would be pretty upset if, you know, the Bing engine and, and DuckDuckGo are all they're, they're left with. I haven't taken photos, but we have, of course, Interstate 40 and Interstate 35 pass through uh, Oklahoma City. And on I-30 uh, or I-40, uh, there are these huge billboards advertising for DuckDuckGo. So it's like, come on, truckers, make the transition from Google. Embrace DuckDuckGo for privacy, which I thought was was interesting. But these are still pretty much fringe browsers compared to the massive market share that Google has. Yep, absolutely. And there's a there's a bigger point to be made here, and I'll relate this to an article a little bit later in the show, that this is also part of the problem with doing things based on advertising dollars, right? Like a lot of the core UG that we seem to be hitting our heads against over and over and over again is that the advertising dollars that run the free internet create some really perverse uh, incentives for people to do bad stuff. And, you know, uh, and Google is, is absolutely no, um, uh, 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 no company to say that they're above that because they're not at, at all. I mean, they run an advertising company, but the, the bottom line is that, um, uh, having to put ads on websites to pay for them. And this is part of the problem, I think, broadly with news right now is that there are, uh, they need those ad dollars to run because there are no dollars left in, in most news operations. And so they got to get the money from somewhere. I wish I could go back 25 years. And, and I also believe too, this would have diminished the power of the internet, at least to start. But to tell news sites, don't give away your content, right? Like you make people pay for it. You know, keep your subscription models. And I try to talk the talk because I now subscribe to probably seven or eight publications, um, you know, between newspapers, magazines, and, and a couple of news websites to, to try to support that. So the advertising dollars diminish. But the bottom line is advertising supported internet creates a lot of, of really, really strange incentives that I think are causing a lot of our problems. Absolutely. And that'll tie to my, my, one of my geeks of the week too, in terms of folks who are working to reimagine the internet and think how we could, you know, have not only social media platforms, but news sites and other things that aren't just driven by surveillance capitalism, which underlies the, the advertising economy of the web. Absolutely. All right. Well, what else? one of the, one of the quick Chrome article, this is from, uh, Kevin Tofel reports in about Chromebooks that there was a, uh, an analysis released by, um, a research group called Canalys, and they noted that in 2020, there were 30.7 million Chromebooks sold globally. And the point that Mr. Tofel is making, and I think it's an important one, is that obviously that number is interesting because the sales of Chromebooks were up 287% um, in quarter four of 2020. If you compare you know, year over year, quarter to quarter, that's an extraordinary increase. But something he said, which I, I think is absolutely true, is that part of 
Chrome's problem, a Chrome OS's problem in the last 10 years when it comes to consumers. And remember, we're at, you know, nearly year 11 of having Chromebooks and the Chrome operating system uh, available for consumer purchase. And he said that a lot of the problem has been that people just don't have the opportunity to use one. And so they don't get it right. Like they don't understand that if you have a Chromebook, there's a pretty good chance that you can do everything you probably wanted to do because the internet dominates our computing in, in 2021. And so he expects that that'll be a big deal, not just because a lot of Chromebooks were purchased last year and they will continue to be used, particularly in schools, but because if you had a Chromebook sent home with your kid for remote learning, or you picked up a Chromebook for your kid at home for remote learning, or you yourself utilized a Chromebook for the first time in 2020, you're going to figure out that you can be pretty productive, especially if you are a kind of typical computer user. User. Although, as I mentioned here in the past, um, I feel like the Chrome operating system, you have to make some compromises, but I feel like I can be very productive, productive as a power user on Chrome OS as well. And I've said this before, but I, you know, have have had direct responsibility for administering um, a relatively large number, I mean, hundreds of, of Chromebooks. And, you know, we finally, anyway, pushed 100 iPads. We've got more than that at school now. But a lot of devices, um, that's not like it's the scale of these, you know, massive public schools, but I have direct experience and Chrome to, in my experience has been a dream to manage relative to the complexity and the hoops and what we've had to do to manage, uh, Apple devices, uh, iOS devices, particularly. I love my iPad, uh, iPads. I, and my phone, I, I don't want to give them up, but. You know, Chrome is phenomenal. Those uh, numbers, I'd, I'd be curious to know what kinds of delays we're now seeing in terms of ordering. I know that, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, there were, you know, it was months that you would have to wait, you know, before getting some, some devices. And I don't know whether that backlog is still, is still present, but, uh, Chrome's fantastic. And I have, you know, when I went to Egypt just a little bit over three years ago, I decided to just go, you know, all Google. So I, uh, you know, ditched the, the iPhone actually for nine months, but then I just took the Chromebook and went with it and, uh, you know, had a successful experience. And I would like to use a high end one if I'm going to do that experiment again. But, you know, it's, we're, it's hard to change. We all have baby duck syndrome with our devices. That means that we get imprinted like the baby duck with our mama. We're like, I've got to use this, you know. Um, it's hard to change, but especially when you look at security and how hostile the environment is for traditional operating systems, and you look at the kinds of things that teachers and students are doing and the robust way in which the web has matured, there's a whole lot of different factors. And you look at costs, you know, and you look at refresh and how you're going to turn those things over. Chrome continues to be very, very attractive. And I think that it's not just the schools on a budgetary standpoint looking for sort of the cheapest device. You know, it, it's also just on a, on a function basis in terms of management um, that, that make Chrome just a fantastic platform for education. Awesome. Okay, where to next, sir? Well, let's go to your Apple news, sir, with a few <laughs> links. Um, I dropped in a YouTube link that I had watched. A shout out to Darren Draper up in Utah. He had shared a Forbes article, which I actually don't have in the show notes, which was kind of saying, you know, 
Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, just, you know, really, you know, took on Facebook. I mean, they've been doing that before, but the link I dropped in, and maybe you can talk about the nine to five Mac one, uh, is a YouTube link dated January 29th. And the title is Tim Cook keynote on privacy from the CPCD conference. I think this was a European conference, but it is pretty strident. He doesn't say Facebook, but, you know, he is condemning and you may have previewed this a little earlier that we're going to talk about this, the advertisement dominated tech economy, the way in which we are. And he doesn't, I don't think say surveillance capitalism either. We've used those terms before Shoshana Zuboff, who is one of many wonderful um, experts in the documentary, the social dilemma. And if you haven't watched that on Netflix, you need to go put that on your, on your watch list. Um, you know, that, that whole model has, caused a lot of unforeseen consequences, uh, you know, society wide. And so Apple continues to position itself as the, the privacy champion, um, the consumer, I think rights champion when it comes to, to privacy. And also I think is really continuing to, to, to push Facebook and to have a directly adversarial, not just tone, but, you know, trajectory, the ways that they are requiring app developers, including Facebook, to have much more disclosure about the kinds of information and data that is collected and used by applications. And so anyway, if you want to watch it, I I didn't, I don't think I watched the entire thing and it did kind of get into sort of a, which I don't mind, but an Apple advertisement, sort of like an Apple event, you know, as he kind of goes through the wonderful sales and successes of Apple. But but the beginning part is it, it is a very uh, confrontational tone. And frankly, I'm thrilled to see Apple taking this kind of stand. Apple has a lot of power and a lot of clout and and what they do you know, ha- has has a lot of impact. And so I think the moral high ground here, if I can say it that way, is really with Apple um, because I I think we're we've said this before we're gonna see we're seeing tech correction signs we're going to see some tech corrections and I think that Tim Cook is gonna be one of the the Silicon Valley leaders probably that elected officials are going to to be listening to and you know it'll be interesting to see as Apple's ideas about what that kind of regulatory change would look like you know where are they gonna where are they and their lobbyists going to landing what are they going to get behind as far as specifics um because they're doing things with just their policies and what they're doing with their app store but you know will they support regulation what will that kind of regulation look like they're certainly not happy with the way that facebook um has defined their their business model and the impact that that's having on not just user privacy but on a whole lot of aspects of i think our society and economy Yep, absolutely. And the article I posted just pulled some quotes from that, that particular speech. And what I would say is that, and, um, I, I've read through a full transcript now and then, then obviously this article and, you know, it, it is awfully, awfully convenient for, for Mr. Cook to make these claims because they sell hardware, right? So they get quite a profit off of selling of hardware devices and the software they sell, uh, isn't sold directly. They sell it through, um, the hardware that, that they sell, right? And then also they have enormous monopoly on, uh, apps because they are the only app store available on a good percentage of the world's premium computer devices, right? So that's a piece of this as well. But that said, I mean, this is the debate, right? And it's not going to be solved now and, and it's likely to be years, if not decades in the making. 
but at some point, uh, this is going to come to a head. And I hope that we're able to restore some institutions that were sadly lost because of part of the, the ongoing freeness of the internet, creating you know, incentives uh, to give away your product when that wasn't a way to keep making your product out of professionals. I'm talking specifically, obviously, of news, um, but we'll have to see. I think I'm trying to see if I found the the right Forbes article. Uh, maybe I didn't. I'll see if I can find it. Yep, uh, Peggy says a blast from the past, Darren Draper. So one of those things that I uh, yeah I followed followed Darren on Twitter and on some lists, which I tend to use my lists a little more than my general feed. A good find. All right, let's get into some of your other Apple news, my friend. I'm oh, excited. I'm going to get mocked forever. We, we've got, it's not mocking. It's love. It's love. It's love, yeah, because I've been yeah. welcome back into the fold. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much I've mentioned this on the show the last couple weeks. I've mentioned to West directly for sure, but I am slowly and surely getting sucked back into uh, Apple World. And um, uh, what I would tell you is that I'm not ready to move back to – I'm not ready to move to it as a primary desktop yet because there are a few wonky things that, that I need to get resolved. And I expect that to be resolved by late spring, so that's fine. But I did get a docking station. Actually, I, I, I have a docking station at home that's compatible with it. Uh, one thing that I would note, if you're considering getting uh, an M1 uh, MacBook or MacBook Air or MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, is you if you do, do spend time in a docking station or you otherwise hook it up to monitors, there is a limit of one external monitor on the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro, the, the first models of this. It's two monitors if you utilize the... Um, the Mac mini, right? But it's just one. There's some, uh, hacky things you can do utilizing something called display link technology. It's a relatively dated technology now. It's five or six years old, but you can buy display link cables that'll have a USB three on one end and, you know, uh, HDMI, uh, uh, port or, uh, uh, VGA port or, uh, uh, DVI port on the other end of it. So it's possible to do that. Um, I'm going to hack something together here pretty quick to be able to do that. But my docking station works great. Um, I also, something that, that I mentioned before too, that, uh, and this leads me into my article, Jason Snell, who is a big, uh, Apple guy. Uh, he runs a, a pretty great, uh, uh, Apple website that's called Six Colors. It's a kind of an Apple news site. And he posted something he calls his 2020 Apple report card. And he goes through and tries to, um, uh, I guess give a, an accounting of, of where Apple is at the end of, of each year. And he's done this for the last, uh, well, this is the sixth year he's done it. So this goes back to 2015. And in the past year, um, uh, he uh, is reporting um, some interesting things. Uh, Mac is up, iPhone is up, iPad's down, watch is down. And this is by like his estimation of the platforms and where they're going. Apple TV is down, uh, services is up, HomeKit's up, uh, hardware reliability is up, software quality is up, uh, dev relations is slightly down, um, environmental social targets is up, and wearables is down. Um, and there's a really extensive report that is, is worth your read if you're an Apple fan person. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I guess for me personally, it does articulate pretty well what drew me back into Apple architecture. And for the longest time, I had problems going back to iPads or iPhones because I felt like the interface was getting pretty simplistic and clunky. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because 
I the phone that I picked up is an Apple um, iPhone XS. It is a used phone that I picked up on Swappa. Um, this retailed for a thousand dollars. I was able to pick up a year and a half old phone. The battery condition is not super great. It's only got 86, 86%, um, uh, uh, charge, uh, maximum. So at some point I'll need to replace the battery. It doesn't matter right now because I'm at home. Um, but I will say that, you know, you had to get used to some gestures. You had to learn new ways to do things and it didn't take me very long to get to where I was a very efficient iPhone user. And so I would say that if you've been out of the Apple tribe for a while and you felt that the interface felt clunky to you, um, it comes back. And I do feel like that things are, are pretty intuitive. And uh, we'll have to see what 2021 looks like. I am very curious to find out what new Macs look like this year. I think at some point I'm going to be personally be in the market for a kind of a next generation Mac mini whatever the M2 chip is, or I hear there's an M1X or M M1 Pro chip, that might be a factor, but I want to give that little update of my Apple world. And then a couple other quick ones. Uh, this one was a surprise to me. Older Apple TVs will require uh, AirPlay to use YouTube starting next month. Uh, this is from today's 9 to 5 Mac. If you've got an Apple TV 1, 2, or 3, so in other words, you have anything that's older than 2018, um, the YouTube app will stop working and in fact it will be deleted from your device and the only way to play a YouTube video then um, will be to airplay it uh, to your uh, your to your device and I believe it has to do with um, uh, uh, some um, video providers and different technologies in regards to decoding, if I remember correctly, uh, from the article. But that's something to know is that if you are using an, an, an older Apple TV, which happens to be my household, then the YouTube app will stop working. I dropped one other uh, Apple-related article in there, and this was from Macworld UK uh, from January 25th, Apple planning blood sugar sensor for the 2021 watch. One of the areas that I think Jason Snell, um, <laughs> okay, this will be an interesting response that Jason Snell um, talked about, you know, rating Apple highly was on the wearable side and <laughs> you don't want to spend the money. Is that what that is? I'm like actually getting my credit card out to buy the damn thing. So, Oh wow. Holy well, dog. Fancy, amazing technology, right? I mean, this is definitely, I mean, we've got Apple has so many different, product lines. I mean, Google does too, but you know, one of the things I've been happy to see is that they've split some of that up with some of the events. And we've mentioned this before. If you haven't watched some of the Apple events, just from a like video production quality and storytelling yeah. presentation, it is, it's phenomenal what they've done in the pandemic with, with that. It's been helpful that they didn't try to pack everything into one, you know, keynote and, and just give short shrift to, to some of the product lines. But certainly wearables are one of the areas that they are just doing phenomenal work in. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm using a third generation Apple watch and, um, you know, I, I love it, but this idea that the more biometric with privacy, the more biometric right. information you could have about yourself, the healthier you can potentially be, the earlier you might be able to become aware of some kind of issue. Uh, I just, I think it really, it really is a big deal, but it needs to be done in a way that does pr protect our privacy. You know, I don't, I certainly wouldn't be comfortable with Amazon you know, having all that information, but, but even Google, 
Um, and, and of course, anything can be hacked. I mean, it's not to say that Apple, you know, can't be hacked. But your thoughts, Dr. Neifer, does that uh, tempt you at all? Well, take my money is, I guess, thought number one, right? But uh, let me let me tell you a quick story about Apple Health for a moment, right? So I one of the reasons why I wanted to move back into the iPhone fold was that I do have a lot of health data. I wear a number of sensors. Um, I see a number of doctors. And... I, I, I can't afford an Apple Watch at this point, right? It's not, it would be an extravagance that, that I don't really need. And, and in fact, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks back. I did figure out a way to get my, um, my Pebble watch, uh, to work and it's showing, um, you know, my blood sugar, which is currently, in case you're curious, at, at 99. So, and 99 is steady, I might add. So, um, so that's good enough for me for now. And again, I, I'm not leaving the house. So, you know, that, that's more than good enough for where I'm currently at. But, um, I signed into Apple Health, right? And a uh, day or two later, it's like, hey, we noticed you have a Fitbit. Can we pull that data in? I'm like, sure, thanks. It's like, hey, you seem to have a sleep tracker. I didn't know what the Pebble was, but it knew it was a sleep tracker. Can we pull that data in? I'm like, sure. And it's like, hey, it looks like you have the app from your hospital installed. Would you like us to sign into that and pull data from that? I'm like, okay, sure. So it, you'll set up permissions so now the Apple Health app for me is is pulling sleep and step data from two different platforms and two different devices. Um, it's pulling in health data um, from multiple um, uh, uh, medical providers and putting it all in one place. And I would also note for the record that my blood sugar monitor, I have what's called a Dexcom that that is plugged in uh, to me. Right? It's a it's a, a, a sensor that that's that is stuck to my skin. It's also talking to Apple Health. So um, all this information's in one place. And also I would note that it, it's pulled all of my various uh, diagnoses into that app. And I have the choice to put that into my emergency stuff uh, in, 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 in the, the lock screen, right? So if I'm passed out on the road somewhere because I'm in a diabetic coma, um, or my, my blood sugar is dangerously low, um, all they need to do is go to that and click the health thing. And I've given it permission to see all my health stuff. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons I think to, to have, for me to have moved back to this architecture, but that is unbelievably useful. And Wes, you mentioned the key thing, right? You have to trust the platform to do that. Otherwise, there's no way I would have signed in. Um, but that's pretty extraordinary. And then you add blood sugar to the watch and that's, uh, that's pretty darn impressive. So. Absolutely. Uh, Peggy points out that the wearables rating on the six colors for 2020 was down six tenths of a percent. Overall, it's still a 4.0. Um, and I went ahead, I'll put this uh, link in the chat, uh, pulled the, the 2019 six colors report, put wearables at a 4.6 A plus. So I think <clears throat> a bit more of the, of the innovation with the wearable, with the, with the Apple watch, you know, came in, in 2019 than in 2020, but that trajectory is, is superb. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Good. All right. Where now? Okay, uh, one quick uh, uh, Apple article that doesn't carry over to next week. Um, for those of you that are on um, some kind of Apple stuff, but then also use Chrome elsewhere, this includes a Chromebook, you can now download a Chrome extension that... Um, I sorry, you will be able to download a Chrome extension that allows you to utilize iCloud passwords um, in Chrome. So you sign in to Apple, and then iCloud passwords will be available there. 
which means that iCloud passwords would be an acceptable password manager. Um, as we talked about in the past, password managers are really important uh, to security uh, to have a different, a long, secure, random character website, a random character password if you can. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So yeah, you're not locked into a single platform then. It's like like a LastPass or, or a 1Password. Pretty cool. Um, let's see. How about... Oh, I guess let's, let's do some, some tech correction, um, articles. So, um, <laughs> this was another website. I was like, what is that? I have to check this out. Uh, the headline is Facebook home to militant Patriot party movement. And this is from the tech transparency project, which because of a Wikipedia search and a little, um, further investigation is a project of the campaign for accountability on Wikipedia or sorry, the, the, the name of the 5013, 501c3 is campaign for accountability and it is a uh you know liberal uh, nonprofit um involved in in doing research and things and so anyway it's not it's not CNBC or 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 Fox or whatever but um pretty uh, distressing um because this new patriot party which was at one point, possibly something that President Trump was going to support, and then he kind of backed out of it. Uh, there's just a lot of data in here about the explosive growth of this, of this militant, these militant groups, which appear to be fairly decentralized, but kind of the same story we've heard before. Facebook, slow to respond, um, lots of organization and, and just, you know, communication happening with these groups. Um, interestingly talks about symbols. I mean, I remember, it wasn't that long ago, I guess, but, you know, th- symbols of gangs and what were these gangs and depending upon, you know, where you taught and the kids that you had. I mean, these were things that, you know, teachers, you know, needed to be aware of and know in terms of of, of gang symbols and things. Well, there's different, you know, logos. Um, the lion is as one of the the icons that has been adopted by this, which is, I guess, been used by some other white supremacist groups. Uh, and just, you know, overall, this points to how important it is. Let's take the educational lens for us to help students understand what does it mean to say that we have free speech? What does it mean to say we have First Amendment rights in the United States and what kinds of speech are limited? There are there are certain kinds of speech that private businesses, you know, are able to restrict and limit. I mean, we can get kicked out of of a Starbucks or, you know, any kind of restaurant uh, for speech. Um, there's things you really can't do anywhere. I mean, the whole proverbial, you know, yelling fire in the movie theater. Um, but, you know, there's just a lot of folks who are really, really adamant thinking, I guess, that there is an unfettered right to free speech in the United States that we can say and do anything. And anybody who's going to try to stop me, you know, is or, or make me wear a mask. And by the way, this isn't my view. I'm parroting and trying to, you know, repeat things that I hear and read. Um, people, there's a lot of folks that are really on their high horse about this. And so it is important for us to have, I think, some better clarity about free speech and, you know, articles like this. And of course, the riot that we saw in the, uh, the, the uh, United States Capitol on January 6th, Parler. Um, there's an article I won't go into the full details, but the CEO of Parler, I guess, has, has now been removed by the board. Parler was, was very, um, heavily involved. I mean, it was, it was the platform of choice for the, the rioters at, at the Capitol. 
um, as the, the, the scraped content that was taken, you know, from the, the site, videos, photos, and all of this, you know, really revealed. So I just think that's a, an article that points to how important it is that we talk about free speech, that we clarify that. We need to be looking at civics education, you know, in our schools. And I think that issues relating to uh, social media, um, you know, free speech, the ways in which those intersect, like, that needs to be a whole unit that we do in civics class. And I'm not sure how much of that is making its way into the typical high school civics class today. I would also add to this that the uh, Dr. Fryer is doing really excellent modeling. When we find a source that we don't know what it is, we'll go research this and make sure it's part of, of who we cite. So it's not just we got it from here here's who here is, right? And I think that's a really important piece. And I would also suggest doing that modeling in your classroom as well. Um, it's been a while since I, I and, uh, had this particular piece of information. I won't go to the whole story uh, about it, but I, I, I have talked to students that have shown me materials that were handed out in class that were clearly from a, a, a website that I think uh, stretched the boundaries of legitimate. And, you know, part of what you should be doing as well, if you're using the internet uh, for content, which I'd be surprised if you aren't, make sure you know what you're sending your kids to. And, you know, also model at that for them, right? Like I, it, it, let's say it's in a civics class, I'm going to give you today a, you know, a mainstream media news piece. And I don't think you need to explain CNN. I don't think you need to explain the Washington Post or Washington Times or even Fox News. Um, I do think you get outside those kind of well-known media pieces that it would be a very good modeling exercise to demonstrate that you too are looking up what a source is. Or if it's not something common to your students, you're explaining why you are sharing the source. And even if it's biased, which, you know, bias itself isn't bad. Most things have some bias to them. Explaining why that bias helps provide illumination to the issue um, as opposed to obscurity. Most definitely. Uh, one other article that I only scanned and like a lot of legal articles, it is a, a, a pretty uh, weedy Weedy article. Uh, this is from the Lawfare Lawfare website on February first. The title is "Parlor wasn't hacked, and scraping is not a crime." Uh, if you're not familiar with the term scraping, uh, oftentimes that's called web scraping, and there are prohibitions against that. And I know, for instance, Richard Byrne, who's one of the you know most you know, popular and amazing educational technology resource sharers uh, with with his blog and, and website and camps that he does. Uh, I've seen him, you know, share on Facebook and Twitter different things that he's had to do legally because of people grabbing his content, you know, and, and republishing it. Um, but there was, you know, all this content from Parler before it was taken offline by Amazon, you know, removing it from its its uh, its web its cloud. Um, Anyway, this this article is is pointing out that it was really sloppy coding that allowed for people to to grab this content. Even deleted content sort of just had a little flag, um, you know, changed, and you you could still you know pull that content. So <laughs> I, I think that this probably will be a tremendous case study in accountability for digital content and and the idea that you know content that you share. It is not ephemeral. Uh, it, it can be persistent. In fact, it could live forever. I think there's a good chance that this, it's like terabytes upon terabytes of data from Parler that was downloaded. And, and I, th I think that it's been archived so many different places, you know, that, that content may live forever. So 
anyway, it's a bit dense, but there's there's good media literacy and digital citizenship lessons, you know, in all of this. And if we can find ways to be talking about this and avoid, obviously, the difficulties of our polarized times, um, there's important lessons here to talk about, not only with, you know, freedom of speech and limits and and uh, where where our rights, ex- how our rights extend and, and are limited, but also thinking about technology again and what companies have rights to do, what journalists will do, uh, the role that the fourth estate, the journalism plays <clears throat> in our society in providing for not only transparency in what officials and, and organizations and groups are doing, but also doing research about, you know, content and things that have been published and, and after action reports, because we're going to continue to learn, I'm sure, on a lot of things that happened January 6th. And these issues aren't going away. You know, these groups that were emboldened in the past four years to certainly be playing a more prominent role in politics than, than they, they have in a long time. I, the last thing I'll say about this is I'm reminded of Nazi Germany. Well, and actually modern day Germany and the prohibition against the swastika. You know, I was, I would think I was listening to um, a podcast by, Oh, it was, it wasn't Amy Webb. It was the author of Operation Paperclip and, um, the, the Area 51 books. And anyway, the, um, Annie Jacobson. So Annie Jacobson did some interviews in Germany and a former, uh, Nazi uh, official or whatever, you know, had given her something that had a swastika. If she had been found, if that had been identified in customs, she could have been in big trouble with the German government because, you know, merely possessing a swastika and then also saying certain things, it's absolutely prohibited in the nation. You know, we don't have that same kind of prohibition here in the United States. And hopefully, and I could not imagine that we would, you know, experience the, the, the horror of, of the Holocaust and everything that happened in World War II in the nation of Germany to lead them to that point. But it is, um, again, it's an important thing to know. There's prohibited speech. There's certain countries where you can't even have this symbol. You can't display it at all. And there are reasons for that. You know, I mentioned in the show last time uh, a sociological podcast and an author who was saying, you know, after World War II, one of the big things sociologists tried to figure out was how did Hitler happen, right? How did that how did that come to pass in the 30s when we had the Weimar Republic and democracy and you know this this uh, extreme nationalist group rose to power and then everything that they did. So. We are living through interesting times and the issues that we have been experiencing are, are, are not, you know, stopping in terms of the extremist groups that have been using these platforms and, and weaponizing these platforms and the importance that we're going to we're going to uh, we have important roles to play as educators, but also as citizens and our elected officials do as well. And more information and being better informed. And we hope that this show helps you. <laughs> become better informed. We'd love to to hear your feedback if you've got some other articles or things like that. Because oftentimes, you know, I not only listen to the show to listen again to things that Jason said, but just to process. Because there's a lot of stuff that is these aren't simple topics. These are these are complex things, and there's a lot of a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Technology being a, an important piece, but just being part of it. Yep, absolutely. I want to give one last tech correction video and then we're almost at the top of the hour. And actually we started like a minute early tonight too. So we're, we're bumping up against that hour time. Uh, interesting article today from The Verge. TikTok is now warning 
uh, you if there are videos with questionable information, and then we'll also warn you before you share uh, those videos with others. And the reason why I'm, I'm looking at this is that this seems to have a bit of a political bend to it, or maybe like a public health COVID-19 bend to it. And let me assure you, there's plenty of politics and plenty of public health debate on TikTok. But I've also noticed that there is the rise of a lot of videos that are showing things off like life hacks and um, cooking strategies and other things that are, you know, they're not real. They're TikTok real, I guess, is maybe one of the terms I picked up from that. In fact, there's a whole channel I think it's called Party Shirt. Uh, if I remember correctly, that these two guys from Party Shirt, like, actually take TikTok uh, videos that are things like, here's how to get your pop from not ex- pop soda, excuse me, how to get your soda to not explode, uh, you know, after shaking it up, right? And then they say, nope, we tested this, this is, this, this is total, um, uh, 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 they use an unpleasant term for crap. Um, and they said, you know, be careful what you do on TikTok. And so, you know, I read this article a couple times through now. I think they're probably as aimed as much at like those kinds of things as they are, but apparently they have a fact checking and verification staff that's going to be uh, looking at videos that make claims and then, you know, warn you if you're about to share, um, one that is, you know, full of, of, uh, ballyhoo. Polluted information, as some might yes. say. Well, anything else before we head to our Geeks of the Week? I think we should do it. Okay, I'll start with a quick one. Um, I'm reminded of this site because I've actually gotten a lot of great tools from this. Uh, Stack Social, been around for a long time. Uh, it provides usually discounts on software and hardware that, you know, sometimes it's new tools are looking to get a break and get, get customers. Sometimes they'll have, you know, headphones that are dirt cheap. Uh, not necessarily brands you've heard of before, but the reason why I mention this is because, um, I um, have oftentimes picked up a lot of lifetime services that for tools that are in their infancy that have become kind of part of my tool set. So for example, there is a really great uh, stock arts or stock photo site called Scopio, I think is the way you pronounce it. S-C-I-O-P-I-O, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's a deal where they buy up photos from amateur photographers and then allow you to utilize them if you have needs of stock photos. And I picked up a lifetime subscription uh, for that website for $29 that I have access to for the rest of my life. They're now charging $35 a month for access to that. And again, I was early and the website could have shut down because sometimes early websites shut down. But um, I have gotten a lot of interesting tools on here, including a kind of couple lifetime subscriptions to some interesting VPN solutions. Uh, you definitely want to research before you pay any money for this kind of stuff, um, you know, to make sure that the product you're getting is quality. But I thought I would mention that I have bought some interesting things on stacksocial.com. Awesome. And uh, as a symbol and sign of my oversharing lifestyle, I have three that I'll try to, to do quickly. Um, I learned about a new social platform. So uh, I've been... <clears throat> uh, you know, made fun of a little bit for my use of Mastodon, which is a federated Twitter that is open source, but WT Social, I don't know that I've heard of it before. And Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, is, uh, you know, the, 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 the power behind WT Social. So I have a link to my profile on WT Social where I've shared a few things this week and also a link to an absolutely wonderful podcast channel that Ethan Zuckerman has called Reimagining the Internet. And he has an interview with Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales is a luminary for, you know, the Internet and, and technology. Uh, Wikipedia celebrated 20 years, which is really amazing. 
Uh, and so, uh, I've got those links. Chrome Music Lab real quick is just something fun my kids have been doing on their iPads and computers this week. Um, as we kind of did some catch up days and just really fun. No login required. You can play the piano with someone else with multiple people. Uh, you can create songs and save them. You can record your voice and see the, um, the waveforms or the, um, you know, the, the visualizations. Just really pretty cool. And then the last thing. I wasn't going to do this one, but it's called Ground News. I actually found this on the Apple App Store looking at what's new. And so this is kind of like Google News a little bit. And then it's an aggregated news app, but they really try to place the, the news, you know, website organization, you know, on the left, on the right, in the center, somewhere in between, far on the extremes. And they're doing some pretty good things with the layout of that. I know that's tricky. You can't always say, Hey, every single article here is, is going to be, you know, exactly this, but, I'm going to consider using that with students. I think that it, it really does provide some nice visuals. And again, there's bias everywhere, but it's important. It's more important perhaps than ever, certainly than the, the day when we had, you know, three TV channels and, and just, you know, three news, news anchors and Walter Cronkite was there. You know, it's much more important that we're paying attention to sources and that we're helping students become aware of where sources might be on a political spectrum. And we can think about you know, taking that into consideration whenever we decide to use that information. So uh, Peggy asks, how do you decide what to share in WT Social? I don't know. I'm just kind of experimenting with it. Um, you know, I've redone my little logo at the top to put cooking. I'm enjoying cooking even more. And I'm like, I'm going to own that. So, you know, who knows? You're going to get some some recipes and maybe learn how to cook picanha steak. I did that on Friday. But um, it's... Uh, a bird, it's a very nascent new community and, um, it's interesting to see these kinds of experiments because I think that's what it is. I think parlor was an experiment too that, that just, uh, didn't go too well. Um, but it's exciting and, and good, especially to see super smart, successful folks like Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia, uh, you know, trying to not follow the surveillance capitalism advertising driven model of other social media platforms and see what else we can come up with. I'm not abandoning Facebook or Twitter, but I do think it's, you know, I newsflash, we're early adopters here of technology. So, <laughs> you know, we're going to play around with some of those things. And I think it's valuable to, you know, see what's being done and think about how, because uh, th th this is part of what I want to encourage, you know, students and teachers to do. We've got to reinvent and reimagine um, the internet, and, and even we need to be rethinking governance in some ways because the the tools and, and the potential that we have for, for these things to be weaponized and, and used in some really terrible ways uh, needs to have an impact on the policies and laws that we have, but also maybe our own behavior and, and education, a lot, of, a lot of things. That was way too long of a geek of the week. And look at me taking us, you know, well past the hour. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's quite all right. Wes, if people want more of this from you, where can they find you on the social medias? Twitter, W Fryer would be the best bet. And actually, and I'll, maybe I should just say this all the time, westfryer.com slash after. Because, uh, and when I was actually in Egypt, the main keynote uh, did that as like, after the keynote, you know, come here. And so you can find my WT social, my Mastodon, all that kind of stuff at that website. How about you, Dr. Knifer? 
Um, I'm not on WT Social yet, but you can find me. My primary social media that's intended for the world is Twitter, and you can find me at Tech Savvy Teach. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a once-a-week podcast. We are uh, live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m., Central Time and like somewhere in the middle of the night UTC. I was going to look at that up on my fancy iPhone clock, but I decided not to. So if you don't want to join us live, although we really wish you would, uh, Peggy George uh, loves to have company in our chat room and Wes's parents stop by quite a lot too. Uh, you can download our podcast. Uh, most podcast aggregators, in fact, I haven't found one uh, in the last year or two that doesn't have our podcast. Just te- search for EdTech SR. Go to our website, our website, our website at techsr.com or we're also on Facebook and, and, and Twitter, uh, at techsr and we will announce when we're live and also places where you can find the, uh, podcast for download. Please join us live. If you can't listen to us later, we bid you a good evening. Stay safe, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. And so ends the 1AR for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> 